Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Isaiah 13, 6 through 16. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through. Whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Thank you, Deborah. Please be seated. We are in Isaiah 13 through 27, and I will be giving you an overview of the content and hopefully be setting us up for the next two studies. Our three studies are in chapters 13 through 27. But the question that does confront us this morning is, are we ready? Are we ready for the great and terrible day of the Lord? It's perhaps one of the most graphic depictions of that day. I believe it is the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a horrific day for the unbelieving. But for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior from sin and death, It will be a day of celebration and of joy. I know we have just prayed, but I'd like to pray again. Our Father, we thank you for the singing of songs, for the extending and receiving of fellowship, for the giving of gifts. We thank you for the prayers and now the expositing of the apostles and prophets' teachings. Holy Spirit, we trust you have prepared our hearts for the receiving of your word. May we be deaf and blind to the sounds and sights surrounding us, and may we see Jesus only. We ask you to override our appetites and arrest our attention so that all we see and hear is you as our loving Father, Jesus as our compassionate Savior, and the Holy Spirit as our only holiness. Remove from us in this moment our selfish desires that seek only individual acclaim, and may we enter into this family of families as to how we might serve you by serving one another. May our attention to this time speak of this desire. I pray specifically for our lost loved ones who are not here. I ask that this message, although unheard by them, would reach them in whatever form pleases you, and they would come to understand that they cannot save themselves, but only you can, and Jesus will. 
Thus, we surrender ourselves to you during this time, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We had this particular paragraph read for us this morning because it gives us the color of chapters 13 through 27. And my intent this morning is to place this section in its proper context so that when we hear next week's message and then the following week's message, we will appreciate the impact that it has for us today. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. A death notification is the delivery of the news of a death to another person. It describes the moment a person receives the news of someone's death. There are many roles that contribute to the death notification process. The notifier is the person who delivers the death notice. We have seen this scenario played out in many places. Notifiers can be volunteers, medical personnel, or law enforcement. The receiver is the designated person receiving the information about the deceased. In many ways, the prophet Isaiah is a death notifier. His message to the nations is both heavy and ominous. Now, on a much lighter note, the slogans, sour than sweet, sour sweet gone, refers to the candy's sour to sweet taste. Sour Patch Kids. Uh, I don't know if I have ever had one of these, but the Sour Patch Kids are a tasty, soft, gummy candy. That's what they tell me. After church, Donna will be up front and she'll hand it out to all the kids. But it has a soft gummy candy with a coating of sour sugar so that the taste of the candy changes from sour to sweet. Well, the message of Isaiah to the nation and nations is a Sour Patch Kid message. Although he is a death notifier, he's also bringing a sweet message to the nations. And we'll see this as we work through this particular section, especially when we study chapter 19 of next week. First, the message of Isaiah is sour, and then it is sweet. It is sweet if we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior from sin and death. We've noted, however, the historical or literary context that Isaiah is taking us through. In chapters 1 through 6 and 7 through 12, it's a complete section within the book of Isaiah. But the first six chapters in Isaiah deal with Jerusalem and Judea. In fact, those words occur primarily in those first six chapters. In chapters 7 through 12, you have this book of Emmanuel, a book of hope, but the It deals primarily with Ephraim, the ten northern tribes, and Samaria, which is the middle part. And then chapters 13 through 27 deals with the surrounding nations, and that's where we are right now. And this will become very evident as we work through this section in overview. So you're going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. We hear that concept and idea in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and the book of Acts. But Isaiah seems to be imitating or paralleling that same thought. Uh, Luke would be imitating Isaiah, but you have this idea of a single story with Jesus at the center. There are three dominant nations in this area that we are aware of. You have Babylon, you have Assyria, you have Egypt, and what's really astounding, and we'll see it again next week in chapter 19, but the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God, will one day become allies in their singular worship of God. But these are the three powerhouses that are in the region and are working against Israel, working against God. As we will quickly see, this this section addresses the surrounding nations over which God rules and controls. God rules all of these nations. He controls all of these nations. 
but there are five thematic accents that are elevated by the repeating and, and concentration of certain words. Uh, for example, our first illustration of this is the word burden or oracle. And I'm going to have you, if you have a paper Bible, this will work really well. If you have an electronic Bible, I'm not sure how well this will work, but I'm going to read through the passage and there's multiple references and occurrences of this word. And the reason why I am doing this, uh, for example, in chapter 13, verse one, if you're looking at your Bible, it says the oracle or burden concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos saw. The word oracle in our mind has this idea of a verbal communication, but the word carries with it a burden. It's something that's weighing down the prophet and the message is one of bad news. It's not one of good news. So the prophet bears this burden and he communicates it to the nations, the surrounding nations, and the message he is communicating is a bad message. It's a sour message. But notice with me the preponderance of the word oracle or burden, and burden would perhaps be a better understanding of this word in this section. And in Isaiah, this word is used or concentrated in this section. It only occurs one or two other places after this section in Isaiah. But notice chapter 13, verse 1, the oracle or burden concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Chapter 14, verses 28 and 29. In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle, rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. So you go from Babylon to Philistia, chapter 15, verse 1, an oracle concerning Moab, chapter 17, verse 1, an oracle or burden concerning Damascus. Chapter 18, verse 1, in our ESV Bible, it reads, Ah, it's actually the Hebrew word oracle or burden to the land of whirring wings that is beyond the river of Cush. In chapter 19, verse 1, an oracle concerning Egypt, bad news concerning Egypt. In chapter 20, you'll notice chapter 20, verse 3 is not a burden or oracle except on the prophet himself. It says, then the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. So Isaiah himself is a sign to the nation. He's walking for three years naked and barefoot. I don't think he was completely naked, but he was exposed and he was a sign to the surrounding nations. Then in chapter 21, verse 1, the oracle or burden concerning the wilderness of the sea. In chapter 21, verse 11, the oracle concerning Dumah. Chapter 21, verse 13, the oracle concerning Arabia. Chapter 22, verse 1, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. Chapter 23, verse 1, the oracle concerning Tyre, Sidon will also be included. And then in chapter 24, you have the beginning of what is called the little apocalypse. Chapter 24 has a preponderance of the word world or earth. And then chapters 25 through 27, you have a song or songs of redemption. But I trust you get the gist of what's taking place in this section. The burden, the burden, the burden, the burden, the burden, the burden, the burden. It's all bad news concerning the surrounding nations. And that's the takeaway that you get inside of this context. So we have Israel... We have this message toward the 10 northern tribes. Now it's reached all the way to the world. It's the surrounding world, the map of that day. The second thing inside of this section is the reoccurring of the phrase, in that day. Of the 105 times the phrase, in that day, occurs in the Old Testament, 
Isaiah uses it 43 times. The other interesting occurrence is in Zechariah. Zechariah uses it 20 times with 16 of those occurrences found in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And they're evenly distributed in those three chapters. Thus, pound for pound, Zechariah, the prophet, really tips the scale as to its usage. However, Isaiah equally emphasizes in that day. And we've talked about that idea already. But that's what's being accented inside this section. In that day. In that day is a working synonym for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a protracted period of time, including everything from the initial periods of exile, beginning in 722 with the 10 northern tribes being carried away by Assyria and ending at the second coming of Jesus, which is eminent. Thus, it runs from the captivity to the coming. That day includes the punishing of Israel. It includes the destruction of her enemies and the redemption of the unbelieving. So when you talk about in that day, it's speaking of a future day, future to the prophet, future to the people, but it's an inclusive, protracted day that runs from exile or captivity all the way to the coming of Christ. Christ inaugurates the day of the Lord in his incarnation, and he consummates the day of the Lord at his second coming. We have that same idea in chapter 13, verses 6 through 18, which we just had read for us, but think of the graphic language that is used by the prophet in describing that day. It says in chapter 13, verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. It is a horrific day. What I found interesting as I continue to consider the study is that the word punishment also occurs in this section. And the idea that when Jesus comes, when the day of the Lord is fully played out, there will be a punishment towards those who have rejected Jesus. That day is a future day. It can be eminent future or a delayed future, but it is always future. There should be no doubt that the second coming of Jesus Christ is the culmination of this great and terrible day. Listen to just a handful of references that you are perhaps already familiar with. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2, verse 16 in 1 Thessalonians, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Chapter 5, verse 9 of the same book, for God hath not appointed us to wrath. And then 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, we have this very graphic depiction of what it will be like when Jesus Christ returns. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Isaiah speaks to that day, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 
when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. The day of the Lord is a great and terrible day. For those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin and death, it is a day of destruction. But for those of us who know him, it is a day of great celebration. When we read Isaiah chapter 13, 6 through 16, it gives us this horrific description of what that day will be like for the unbelieving. A terrible day. But we must understand that. I've noted here in chart form, we've seen this before, but when we studied the book of Revelation, when it speaks of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the word wrath accompanies the coming. It is a day of destruction. But for the believing, the day of the Lord is a day of deliverance. This pushes us to pray for those whom we love and who do not know Jesus. We prepare for the great and terrible day of the Lord by believing in Jesus. And those who do not know him will be destroyed. A third theme within this section is the idea of the Lord of hosts. And it occurs repeatedly throughout Isaiah, but there's a heavy concentration of that title inside this section. He is the Lord of hosts. And why is this significant as God plays out his judgment upon the surrounding nations? The one who brings judgment on the nations is the Lord of heaven's hosts. The one who commands heaven's armies and wields the sword of the Lord shall destroy the armies of humanity and crush all those who rebel against the throne of God. The armies of this world shall prove no match for the Lord of heaven's hosts. No one and nothing shall stop him from doing all that he desires. He will have his way. Throughout Isaiah, we have competing pictures of contrasts. On one hand, Isaiah chapter 6, we see God sitting upon a throne. And on the other hand stands rebellious humanity against him. And what we always find in Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament is that God always wins. Thus he is described as the Lord of hosts. No one and nothing can stop God from doing all that he desires. And we see that in this section. This ties us to the thought of glory. I found this somewhat interesting, and, and the picture is of Tiglath-Pileser III putting his foot on the head of his enemies. The fourth theme is the use of glory in this section. And what is of interest in the use of glory in this section is its destruction. Glory is also concentrated in chapters 40 and following, but there he is the Lord of glory who controls all things. Here, the glory of man is being abased. And we heard that in chapter 13 and following, where the proud, the arrogant are abased and humbled. This picture of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and that's happening. He is king during this period of time with Isaiah. He is wearing his crown and carrying his staff of kingship in his right hand, and he is putting his foot upon the neck of his enemies. When the day of the Lord is played out in full, the enemies of God will become his footstool. That is language and a vocabulary that we are already familiar with. In Psalm 110, verse 1, it reads, Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Many of you study the Psalms. Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. 
it reflects this idea of Isaiah 13, 6 through 11, where we hear this theme of in that day, the proud and rebellious shall be abased and subdued. When God unleashes his fury against the nations, all shall bow before him and no one shall boast. Isaiah preaches this sour message to the surrounding nations. He unleashes the fury against the nations and they all bow before them. All of their glory shall be subdued. The last thing we see inside of this section, and again, we'll tease out a thought in Isaiah 19 and then in 24 through 27, but this sets the stage, it sets the tone. The final theme that we see inside of this section is this idea of the world. When you read Isaiah, and, and part of uh, reading Isaiah is really a, a task of endurance. Uh, you're, you're reading something that is rather large, and what I would encourage you to do is between now and next Sunday, read chapters 13 through 27, and see if you can't hear these themes being repeated inside this section. You can pick up one of the manuscripts. But you have this chart, and it has all the placements of the words, and I would encourage you to read 13 through 27. But you have also in this section a reoccurrence of the words earth and world because it's addressing the world. It's addressing the earth and its inhabitants. There is an apex or or gathering of all those words in chapter 24, which we will consider. But the only other section having any significance of the earth is chapters 40 through 50, which is another section in Isaiah. That also uses the idea of earth and world. There the Lord owns it. Here he destroys it. It is clear in Isaiah that this section in particular is moving us from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost regions of the world. You have this expansive idea of the world or earth inside this section. A high concentration is found in chapter 24. Listen to Isaiah 24 verses 5 and 6. In chapter 24, you have this uh, occurrence of the word. In chapter 24, verses 5 and 6, it says, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men, few people are left. That same idea is seen in verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth. Repeated again in verse 3. The earth shall be utterly empty. When you look at the occurrence of the word earth or world inside of this section, there are four thoughts that we can note. The first is this. When the day of the Lord happens, the earth, creation, will shake. In Isaiah 13, 13, it says, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place. That vocabulary is very familiar to several New Testament passages. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, Matthew 24, 29, Revelation 8, 12, Hebrews 12, 26 and 27, Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. All of it speaks of this idea that when Jesus Christ returns, when the day of the Lord finds its fullest expression the earth shall remove out of her place. Isaiah 24 graphically speaks of this shaking. In verse 1 of Isaiah 24, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty 
makes it waste, turns it upside down, scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. Verse 4, the earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. Verse 5, the earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. Verse 6, therefore hath the curse devoured the earth. Verse 18, the foundations of the earth do shake. Verse 19, the earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean, dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. Verse 20, the earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. The great and terrible day of the Lord. Are you ready for that day? We also see inside the section that earth and world act as synonyms for nations. Isaiah fourteen sixteen is this the man that made the earth to tremble that did shake kingdoms? Verse 26 in Isaiah 14, this is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon all nations. It's used as synonyms. When God comes, the nations, its inhabitants, shall shake. But what is a word of encouragement is found in Isaiah 14, verse 7. And it's always interesting when you read Isaiah that in the middle of all this catastrophic activity, there's words of hope. In Isaiah 14, verse 7, the whole earth, after you have all the shaking and emptying, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Isaiah 25, verse 8, and the rebuke of his people shall take away from off all the earth. It is only after this violent shaking that the whole earth will be at rest. We cannot avoid the day of the Lord. It's going to happen when Jesus comes. But whether or not the day is a day of destruction or celebration depends on whether or not you believe in Jesus. For the nation of Israel and the nations of the world, there shall be a purging of the earth. It is only after this reset that there will be peace. All of this is controlled by God and culminates in Christ. What do we do with this? I look at Isaiah 13 through 27, and the message of Isaiah is, in a sense, and can be very dark. But it is also filled with hope. As then, so also now. We go through this tribulation, this exile, a judgment before we are at rest. God shall destroy what is before he establishes what will be. Remember our last study in Isaiah 11, and and we have tried to mark throughout Isaiah the words of hope that are found throughout. Remember Isaiah chapter 11. From the clear-cut forest of Isaiah 10, 33 and 34, shall come a shoot and a branch. This coming branch shall be a righteous ruler. This coming branch shall reverse the curse and restore the garden. This coming branch shall rule the nations. That's what will happen in the day of the Lord. When Jesus comes, all this horrific activity that is poured out on the unbelieving is for us a time of celebration and joy. It inaugurates fully the branch as the righteous ruler. It reverses the curse. It restores the garden and he rules the nations in that day. What is the word we are left with in this section? Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21 read as follows. Come, my people, enter into your rooms, close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. 
For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. When Jesus comes, it will be a horrible day of reckoning for the unbelieving and rebellious. But when Jesus comes, it will be a day of great celebration and joy for his people. Like Israel, so also now. And the question is, are you ready for the great and terrible day of the Lord? Are you ready for the great and terrible day of the Lord? Our tendency is to say, manana, tomorrow. We put it off and we kick that can down the road. The question confronting the nation and the question that confronts us is simply this. Are you ready for the great and terrible day of the Lord? That day is eminent. Jesus Christ is coming. Do you hear what the prophet says to the nation and to the nations? For just a moment as we consider this idea, hear with the Spirit's voice and listen to the simplicity of the invitation. We need to stop the white noise, all the distractions that are running through our minds and heads right now. And we need to set aside all of our earthly concerns and distractions and listen to what the Spirit says right now, today. And right now, today, the Spirit says, come. Come to Jesus. Acknowledge that you cannot save yourself, that you are a rebel against God. Come and say yes to God. Many of us have loved ones who do not know the Lord Jesus as their Savior from sin and death. And there might be someone who you love who does not believe. And right now I am inviting us and I am inviting you to ask God to touch their hearts and minds so that they would see their wickedness and his righteousness and believe in him. We need to pray for them right now. And you think, is that effectual? Does that work? All of us are living proof that God can touch your life and turn you from where you were going to where you now are heading. God did that then, and God does that now. And we need to pray for our loved ones who do not know Jesus as their Savior from sin and death. And why? Because there is coming a day that is great and terrible. And Isaiah the prophet gives us that great and terrible day of the Lord. But for us who know him, it is a day of celebration and a day of joy. But let us be praying for our loved ones. Let us be praying for those closest to us who do not know Jesus, that God would touch their lives and cause them to see themselves for what they are without him, and that they would flee to Jesus, and that they would be saved today. So let us pray. Our Father, we look at what the prophet has said. He paints for us a very graphic picture The day of your coming for the unbelieving is a great and terrible day. Father, we pray for those whom we love who do not know you, that the Spirit of God would use those voices that are around them and communicate them gospel, and that, Father, they would see themselves for what they are and that they would turn to Jesus for the salvation of their soul. And this day for them would be a day of celebration and joy, that this day would be a great day. Guide us in our thinking. Open our hearts and minds to these truths. May we accept what you are doing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.